Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there. My name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is a dairy woman, award-winning journalist and author who has written extensively on so many elements of Northern Ireland and much more. It's a pleasure to welcome Susan McKay. And Susan, I read about you growing up in Derry and I wondered, did you fit in comfortably in your youth in Derry? Well, I fitted in with Derry. I didn't really fit in with London Derry, which is where I was ostensibly born. And I think that that kind of was the root of the restlessness that I've had ever since. I was born into a, a Protestant family. My grandfather would have been an orange man. We weren't particularly staunch, but it was, I was... I came of age really with the troubles so you know my whole youth was kind of taken up with all the usual exciting youthful things but also sort of a complete political disquiet because I certainly didn't identify with unionist Northern Ireland I identified with the civil rights movement and with you know in terms of music Christy Moore and Planksty and all of those brilliant people who were then coming in I would spend a lot of time sort of as a teenager in you know, the Gidor bar in Waterloo Street, which you had to go through an army checkpoint to get to. And, you know, just generally growing away from my roots. And and how, my, how, my, how father would have actually, my father would have been sort of uh, halfway between um, the, the sides himself. And he would have introduced us to um, Seamus Heaney's poetry, which was very, very influential on me as a young person. And how did your peers react to your uncertainty well, there used to be a lot of rows in history classes, you know, where people would be, myself and my friend used to wear, you know, very childishly, we used to wear little tricolour badges on our coats and uh, little green shamrocks and things. And there would be a lot of shouting in the history classes about them and started it and worse stuff. You know, I felt very, very sorry for the history teacher who was, in fact, uh, a Catholic from the Republic, Art Byrne, who really struggled keep um, things under control and this was in Londonderry High School for young ladies <laughs> but it wasn't a nice time in Derry it was a very very difficult time um, the town was at war um, I was at school in Derry when Bloody Sunday happened it wasn't talked about in my school so we kind of went through that in silence it just I couldn't wait to get away from Derry and when I left in 1975 I thought I was gone for good. But did circumstances mean that everybody was polarised? I mean, you almost had to be given what people witnessed. Well, in a way, yes, but in another way, when you're a teenager in a town full of music and young guys, uh, you're much more interested in um, having a fantastic time and going to the pubs where the music is and you know we used to sit in the Gidor and sing Leonard Cohen songs and 
you know, when only our rivers run free. And I was sitting there singing along to only our rivers run free, little knowing that I was in the company of people to whom it meant a great deal more than it meant to me, mm. you know, who were probably actively involved at that stage in um, republicanism. Did you know people who lost their lives or know families of people who lost their lives? At that stage, not directly. No, my family escaped from... Um, most of of the worst of the of the violence we weren't directly involved we were sort of on the side of things see that's the thing about being a protestant from derry you weren't at the heart of it you were on the edges of it and where i grew up was on the margins of derry it was a place called drumahoe which was it's now a suburb but it was actually outside of the town at that stage and uh, at one stage later on, the, the politics of the place was expressed by uh, someone writing Drumahoe says no on the wall, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it remains a place which is a mixture of quite middle class and with quite an element of loyalist paramilitarism. You were keen to get away and you did get away. Yes, I came, I came down to, to Dublin to go to Trinity. And uh, while I was in Dublin, I got involved in um, feminism. I was one of the uh, early intake of volunteers to the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. So then I decided that I would go to Belfast, uh, drawn back, I suppose, by a sense of needing to kind of understand the North in a different way, having been exposed to the Republic. When I went to Belfast, I was just... Belfast was so much harsher and more extreme than Derry had been and also the troubles had intensified and you know bedded in uh, so I moved up to Belfast in 1981 the hunger strikes were just over and I just found the the intensity and turmoil and horror of the place I couldn't live there unless I became engaged with it in some way so I didn't feel any inclination to become politically engaged but I did get involved in, in feminism there so I was one of the people who set up the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre and then I worked there for a few years. Is it incredible that the Rape Crisis Centre structure is only so recent? It is extraordinary and it is incredible also that the Rape Crisis Centres still struggle to, to get enough funding to, to keep going. I mean, you know, obviously it came to light during the recent rugby rape trial, as it was called in Belfast, that there was no Rape Crisis Centre in Belfast for a while because the one that I had been involved in setting up had kept going valiantly for years, but had ultimately just kind of run out of money and people were exhausted. Mm. So when the young woman in that uh, case went looking for the Rape Crisis Centre, it, it just wasn't there anymore. So thankfully there is a new service that has just been set up, but all of the Rape Crisis Centres around Ireland, like all of the Women's Aid Refuges and all the rest of the services for women experiencing violence, they really struggle to survive. It's shocking, isn't it, that in this modern world that we live in? Well, it isn't really a modern world, that's the problem mm. with it. On the surface it is, but... You know, the reality is that there's a huge tolerance for violence against women and it's expressed in that total failure to come to terms with the fact that it's a huge social problem. Why do you think governments aren't more active on it? I think a lot of men just aren't willing to face up to the prevalence of it and men tend to get very defensive about it and, and sort of assume that it doesn't apply to them. But, you know, violence against women is part of the same continuum, which is also about, you know, women not getting big jobs, women not being put in charge of things, uh, women having to compete in situations where they're never going to win. 
you know, women's sport, as you know about very much. It's only in very recent years that women's sport has begun to be regarded as being as much of interest as, as men's sport. Your first musical choice, Susan, Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I sort of fear at the moment that Sinead O'Connor is in danger of being turned into a national treasure. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, she absolutely isn't a national treasure. She's an absolute national hero. Um, you know, when uh, the song that I've chosen is from her album, uh, The Lion and the Cobra. And if you think that The Lion and the Cobra came out in 1987, a year after, you know, Chris de Berg's nauseating lady in red, you know, and Sinead was just this blast of, you know, wild, angry, passionate young woman energy at that time. She was only 20. I was I was 30 at that stage. And um, Rolling Stone described the, the um, album as being a banshee wailing across the bogs. <laughs> but it was just... You know, she. I remember apparently her record company tried to get her to look feminine and they recommended that she should grow her hair long and wear flouncy dresses or whatever. And she responded by sort of appearing on stage completely bald, wearing Doc Martin boots and a tutu and heavily pregnant. And she was just magnificent. And she has continued to be magnificent over, over the years. My daughter and I were in fact supposed to go and see her along with Soak, another rising star in Belfast this summer but of course with with Covid we weren't able to but it is lovely to see her coming back again but like in 1992 when Sinead uh, famously infamously tore up the photograph of the Pope on Saturday Night Live in America you know people here were quite censorious about her and then in recent years people have taken to saying things like oh you know we're only realising now that she was right. But there were lots of feminists in Ireland who knew she was right at the time, you know, who'd been saying for years, you know, we really have a problem with child abuse in this country and the church is complicit in it because it won't allow it to be spoken about. We had no idea, I think, the extent of it at that stage. But I remember when I worked in the Rape Crisis Centre in Belfast, you know, one of the women who I spoke to was a woman who had been a victim of, of Father Brendan Smith, you know, and that story was only beginning to unfold at that stage. But I think that... He just kept getting moved around, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, he kept yeah. getting moved around and then the Irish authorities wouldn't extradite him to the north and, and, you know, basically he ended up having more victims than we will probably ever know about. But that the particular song, Lion, uh, the, that particular album, Lion and the Cobra, I have a kind of a particular memory of it, which is um, in 1987, I had moved from working in the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre down to Sligo, where I was running a centre for young unemployed people, which was a really successful centre in one way, but in another way, it turned out that my kind of um, northern feminist uh, youth work approach didn't really fit that comfortably with the um, local Catholic church, which was actually in charge of the centre. And, you know, we kind of agreed to go our separate ways. So at the same time, I had split up with a man that I had been with for some years. And I had also lost a lovely home that I was living in overlooking a lake and in a most beautiful part of County Sligo. So I remember distinctly at the age of 30 thinking, my life is over, I've really messed it all up. But I remember after I had gone for a period, I realised, hang on, there's a lot there's a lot more to life than what I thought I had. Yeah. And, you know, within a quite a 
relatively short period of time, I was really happy. I'd met um, Mike, my the man who I subsequently went on to marry, and we have two fantastic daughters. I'd found a new career in journalism, which I love and I'm still with. And I, you know, just in general, life had moved on. So I think I love Sinead's sort of being a survivor and the fact that uh, she is that. But also, I remember from that period, uh, at one, one night I was driving uh, across the mountain from the north, across uh, through Black Lion, across the border and up over the mountain at Glangevlin in County Cavan. And I had this album blasting out of my ageing Opal Corsa. And I was speeding along this mountain road and I think I probably was speeding and I don't say that proudly. After a while I saw this blue light flashing behind me and I looked in the mirror and the guards were following me. And I stopped the car and they said, you know we've been after you for quite some time, you know. And it turned out that they had pursued me since I had sped through uh, Black Lion and this Irish army checkpoint which was in the middle of the village so it was just this kind of strange innocent little memory of a time when obviously checkpoints could be a lot more frightening and a lot more sinister and the guards just kind of laughed at me and told me to uh, keep my eyes open in future but I think that they were kind of amused as well because I had to turn the radio down or I had to turn the, the album down to, um, to hear them Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Sinead O'Connor, the choice of today's guest, author and journalist Susan McKay. Your career in journalism, I mean, it's been a hugely successful career. What brought you to journalism? I think I probably realised that I'd always wanted to be a writer and journalism, given the fact that I had come to know a good bit about society and about politics, seemed like a good place to go with that. And I was very lucky in that in 1992, uh, the year that Sinead tore up the photograph of the Pope, uh, I was taken in by, um, not put it as taken in, I was given a job in the Sunday Tribune by Vincent Brown, who was then the editor there. Mm. And it was the start of of 12 years working for the Tribune, in which I did some work that I still am very, very proud of and wrote a number of my books. Um, I mean, the Tribune, I think, was great. I think it wasn't so great in the end because of the fact that it was kind of starved of money and it was struggling but it's still you know a lot of the the great journalists in Ireland um, worked there over the years and one of the things that I did there was um, I moved into the northern editorship after Ed Maloney left and I quietly transformed it I think from having been when I went into that role um, it was after the Good Friday Agreement really I started to write about social issues in the north and and human rights issues in the north instead of just writing about you know the conflict mm-hmm. news you know again that was that was just really really interesting because i think a lot of people in the republic had kind of just thought oh thank god the good friday agreement we don't have to think about those bloody northerners anymore it's all over but of course it wasn't and it mm-hmm. still isn't but some of the things you you wrote about a lot of the things you wrote about were which is probably why it was great journalism. You were going into the darker areas that others didn't go into. A lot of it was it was tough, tough reading, but it was it was the reality of the awfulness of what was happening. But there weren't yeah, easy I, stories. I spent a lot of a lot of time writing stories that were essentially elegies. I would have gone to a lot of troubles, funerals. I would have interviewed a lot of grieving parents and families and partners after people had been killed and. You know, that, that stays with me and 
I do feel as well that I was probably part of um, a generation of journalists that didn't really realise that that work, while it was very privileged and it was wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to those people and to tell those stories, it was actually quite damaging. And, uh, you know, I think that there is still there's a there's a kind of a legacy of sadness in me still left over from that period of time. But I do think it's really important. People need to realise and. You know, one of the reasons I've chosen my next song is is because of Lyra McKee. And uh, Lyra, I suppose I kind of quite ident- identified with Lyra and she identified with me. You know, she was like a younger version mm. of me. But she was writing about, you know, the generation that she called um, the um, ceasefire babies, the people who were actually very young when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. But she had recognised that the shadow of the Troubles is still over the North and that that needs to be explored, you know, if we're ever, ever going to get the North out of uh, the period of the conflict and into some sort of new contemporary good time mm. for people there. And this song couldn't sum it up better. It's a beautiful song, yeah. Saint Sister. Yeah, Saint Sister are a young, a couple of young Northern singers, uh, Gemma Doherty and Morgan McIntyre. Uh, Gemma's from Derry and Morgan is from Belfast and they were both actually born in 1992 so they're definitely ceasefire babies but it's just an absolutely beautiful rendition of the Cranberries song uh, Dreams and of course it has an added poignancy now because uh, Dolores O'Riordan sadly is no longer with us and she of course her own version of it is definitive Gemma and Morgan I mean I urge anybody who loves it to go and watch this song on YouTube because they recorded this in an underground car park and it just has this strange eerie underworld quality to it and you know you just see this kind of intuitive connection that is between the two of them but it, they sang it the first time I heard them sing it was actually at Lyra McKee's funeral in St Anne's Cathedral in Belfast and it was just perfect it captured all the sort of what we lost when we lost Lyra her hopes and dreams and her expectations and the fact that she was in love the fact that she was moving from Belfast to Derry the fact that she was happy and also just the fact that she was gone that she had been brutally taken from us I think it, it, it really reminded me of, of how important music and art are in terms of, of helping people you know it, again it reminded me of Seamus Heaney who wrote at one time you know about searching for words that are adequate to our predicament and I think that this song was adequate to our predicament I just think it's it's an absolutely superb rendition of this song it's really otherworldly and I love the fact that they are so Northern Irish you know they they, they sing now <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just absolutely lovely Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 That's Saint Sister and Dreams beautiful version, the choice of today's guest, Susan McKay. One of the books that you wrote, Susan, that had a huge impact was your book on being Protestant in the North. And it was powerful. It was kind of shocking in many ways. And and I know you even edited yourself. Some of it was so shocking, but you're still working on that theme, were you? Well, I wrote Northern Protestants and Unsettled People. Uh, it was published first in, in 2000 because at the time I was working in the Republic as a journalist and I just felt people down here didn't know enough about the North and in particular they didn't know enough about uh, Unionist people, Protestant people. So I wrote the book then and yes, I mean, the Troubles was still going on at the time. Uh, there was a lot of very harsh and shocking stuff in there. 
I'm actually currently writing a 20 years on sequel to that at the moment and I'm finding a lot of change. I think that at the time that I wrote the book I said, you know, I talked about the people I uneasily call my own but this time around I found a lot more people that I very easily call my own. Um, there's a lot of, of people in the north, particularly younger people, who I think have really moved on from the old binaries of orange and green and are really determined to make the north a, a much better place. And when will that book be out? Um, it's going to come out uh, early next year, which will be the centenary of Northern Ireland. It should have come out this year, but um, with the pandemic, the, the mm. publisher, Blackstaff, uh, went into furlough. So gave me a bit more time to do it. Uh, I'm also writing a book at the moment about borders. I was going to write a book about the Irish border, but then I discovered that everybody either had already written their book about the Irish border or was about to write their book about the Irish border. So this one is going to be about borders in a wider sense. It's going to be about the Irish border, but also the all kinds of unacknowledged borders that lie between people. Such as? Such as gender, such as class, such as colour. Your third choice, Nina Simone, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Lots of people know the song. Nina Simone means a lot to you. Tell us why. Yeah, she mean, Nina Simone means a lot to me because she was such an extraordinary musician and she never really got the recognition that she should have had. She struggled all her life with being black being a big, angry black woman. And, you know, she said herself that, you know, being a black woman in America for her was something that she could have, would have been enough for her to lose her life for, you know, and that sadly is still true if you look at some of the, the young black people who've been killed in recent times. But she was an absolutely magnificent blues piano player. But she was born in 1933 in North Carolina. She taught herself to play piano at the age of three and yet, as a young teenager, she was turned down for a prestigious piano school where she wanted to study classical piano. And she believed herself it was because she was the wrong kind of black. Her nose was too big, her lips were too full, her skin was just too black, you know. And unfortunately, that has become controversial again recently when a biopic was made in which the uh, black actress who, who plays Nina Simone was blackened up because she was a lighter skinned woman but anyway the song is a the song that I've chosen is originally a civil rights song it's about freedom for black people so I think it's very relevant to our present time but I've also chosen it I think because well one her voice is magnificent she described her voice herself as being ranging from gravel to coffee and cream and that that does just about summon it up but it contains such sort of longing poignancy fury and just sorrow and I just feel as well that it's kind of very relevant to our times because we're all kind of at this time of pandemic wondering what it would be like to be free and wondering will we be ever free and looking also at you know what has happened in America with you know the Black Lives Matter movement you know having people having feeling that they have to come out onto the streets at a time when it is clearly not safe to do so in any way because of pandemic and because of police just realizing that Nina Simone's voice will always endure but there's just a very sweet sadness to it that I think is is right for our moment. Well, it's a lovely way to play out. It's been fascinating chatting with you, Susan. Continued success to you, and thank you for joining us, Susan McKay. We're going to play out with her choice, Nina Simone. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One.